Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Mike DeBernard, his partner at Hughes Hubbard, for our continued exploration in the corruption files. Uh, as insane as some of these cases may have been or may will be in the future, we're going to talk to you today about two of the most insane, and that's uh, Petrobras and Odebrecht slash Brascom. So, Mike, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, to diving into these um these two, two Brazilian cases, which are both near and dear to my heart. So Odebrecht uh, was announced in December 2016, Petrobras September 2018. But I wanted to start with Petrobras because this was the uh, start of car wash. Lava Jato uh, was around Petrobras. Petrobras, I think, at one point employed 10% of the Brazilian workforce. They were as ubiquitous in the country of Brazil as any one non-governmental entity can be, and they, of course, were a governmental entity uh, because they were the national oil company. They were the personal piggy bank of the uh, ruling party, and uh, when times were good, times were good. Uh, And they concealed bribery schemes in literally almost every transaction that they uh, engaged in. The fines and penalties, there was a overall... Uh, 2.95 billion in fines paid. The um, the thing that made Petrobras probably take it to the next level was the offshoots or other companies that got into trouble. We're going to talk about Odebrecht and Brascom uh, at 3.2 billion. Uh, SMB offshore 238 million. Keppel offshore 422 million and. The venerable Rolls Royce got caught for eight hundred ninety million. So we had over five billion dollars in fines revolved around Petrobras. The Petrobras uh, had corruption built into their uh, structure, and this was not them paying; this was them receiving, because uh, every service company in the world literally wanted to work for Petrobras. I worked for couple of those companies in Houston, and we did work for Petrobras, and we got caught up uh, in little parts of that. They were as ubiquitous as uh, they could be. The uh, One of my favorites, uh, we were laughing about this uh, in the green room. There was a chemical company bought by a Dutch company for a couple hundred million dollars, and uh, within uh, 12 months, Petrobras bought it for $1.7 billion, I think. And the Dutch company kicked back the proceeds to Petrobras. Petrobras uh, em- uh, employees stealing or senior executives stealing money from um, their own company. Uh, another company I was with, uh, we were a subcontractor. We were required to use a Petrobras-approved supplier who supplied manpower. And we were feather-bedded, meaning that we paid for three employees from the subcontractor but got two. And the difference was kicked back to Petro- Petrobras purchasing. But, Mike, the, the thing that I tried to communicate them, well, perhaps I should stop, stop there and, and not go into lessons learned. What were your, some of your original thoughts and rereading about this insane case? Yeah, you know, I think, and maybe it's worth here just sort of um, putting this in the context of the, of the broader op- Operation Car Wash, Lava Jato um, uh, investigation that, that came out of Brazil, um, and it, which started... Uh, uh, really is a small money laundering investigation 
uh, into how I think it was how gas stations, how petrol stations in, in Brazil were, were being used to launder money. And basically, they, they investigators sort of caught uh, one of these black market uh, money launderers, um, currency dealers, whatever, whatever they're, there's a there's a Portuguese term for that, and I, I'm going to butcher, so I won't even try to use it. Um, but dealing with a high-level Petrobras official, and the light bulb went off and said, "Let's let's look at this." And it, it, you know, you've already talked about the outcome of it. it was, you know, it, it ends up with, with not just Petrobras, but all these other um, companies inside and outside of, of Brazil. Um, and so, when I, you know, that that was such that operation was such big news really till very recently i think it just got the, the investigation just was shut down at some point last year but it, it touched so much from the very highest levels of of brazilian politics uh to, to presidents in other countries it was such a big part of practicing in this area for so many years which is why i, I made the, the comment about this case being near and dear to my heart and and petrobras was the center of it it was it was the absolute epicenter of this investigation and, and all of the other drama that rolled off of it started here. So when I when I was went back to reread this, I think one of the things that I I, I certainly knew at the time and, and remember now, but sort of gets lost in the confusion here, the actual bribes that Petrobras itself is accused of making, because as you mentioned, it was really them taking bribes. It was it was Petrobras officials taking bribes from various various um, uh, uh, contractors. What they're accused of paying are bribes to other Brazilian uh, officials, public uh, political parties, in return for basically for some of the executives keeping their spots at Petrobras so they can continue the scheme. It was sort of a, a on this feedback loop, and I had sort of forgotten that. And it, it raises some, I think, interesting questions from a from an FCPA legal perspective. Um, and, and and the other piece of it that I'd kind of forgotten about a little bit too was was not just the the spinoff. Um, cases in terms of, you know, we mentioned Odebrecht and, and others, but also all the litigation that came out of this um, in terms of shareholder class actions. Some of that stuff is still going on uh, that that really um, kind of, you know, they paid, what was it you said? I, I can't remember the, the number that Petrobras paid, but that's only a portion of what, what they paid, you know, that aside from the cost of the investigation, they paid another you know, 2.6 billion in shareholder litigation, and there's still more to come. So that this has just been so wide ranging and, and far reaching. It's incredible. Uh, thanks for bringing that up, because that's a really important point that I want to emphasize. And that's the shareholder litigation. This was by a factor of, I can't even calculate how high a factor of uh, increase in payment in shareholder der derivative litigation against a company over 2.6 billion paid i think the highest one to date had been in the range of 100 million and uh, i certainly understand the maxim that bad facts make bad law but when you create bad law it's still law even if it was because of some very bad facts and now we have literal precedent for a 2 billion plus shareholder litigation settlement uh, for directly against a company and, you know, once you have that, that standard set, it may be an outlier, just like uh, Siemens was for many years in the FCPA world. It's been exceeded many times now. And uh, I'm afraid to say that uh, D&O coverage uh, will have to look at that case. And I think they have to factor that into uh, their rate structure 
because like I said, once you get one out there, it's, it's, it's no longer unprecedented. So that case, uh, uh, was certainly significant. That got a lot, of, a lot of people's attentions, and the invidiousness of this case, Mike. Uh, we had a, an ex-president, uh, President Lula, went to prison over bribes around this. We had a sitting president, Dilma, who was uh, thrown out uh, because of this case. Uh, but the corruption went down many levels uh, below simply the presidents of Brazil, and they were able to keep. Uh, this uh, bribery scheme going, and uh, in terms of tips of the hats to the Brazilian judges and prosecutors in this case, I don't think you could have had a more difficult uh, time when literally your biggest company in the country was leading this effort, yet they went after these individuals uh, and a whole host of others. So I think those judges really put it on the line, and they developed some very good relationships with U.S. prosecutors uh, over this case, and I think the results of those relationships are still being felt today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, one of the, I think, longest-lasting impacts potentially of this is that relationship that, that developed between the MPF and, uh, and others in, in, the, in Brazil and U.S. and other uh, foreign regulators because, as, we've, as we'll see, with some of the other um, settlements and, and resolutions that came out of this, it wasn't just the U.S. and Brazil. You've got Switzerland involved, kind of getting getting involved. You have, excuse me, you have Singapore, I think, in one case. So, um, but really establishing a credibility and um, capability and capacity, uh, if I can use three terms to, to describe kind of what the Brazilian authorities did with, with, with this case and, and the others around Operation Car Wash, uh, that I think really will have long-lasting implications for Brazil's uh, ability to participate in these large-scale corruption investigations, both in Brazil and, and potentially outside of Brazil. Mike, the, some of the bribery schemes in this case are things I really wanted to, to visit with you about because I found them, uh, in addition to being so invidious, so difficult to detect. So in many cases... We had a U.S.-based or, or Western Europe-based energy service company who would get a master agreement with Petrobras for an amount not to exceed, and $2 billion, $3 billion, $4 billion, $5 billion for the contract. And uh, the Petrobras would overcharge, uh, or rather the, the company would overcharge and or, and or Petrobras would overpay, and then funds were kicked back to the individual Petrobras employees. Uh, we had other situations where the uh, fraudulent price was baked into the bid. So once again, it was not unusual to have a contract of $1 billion, $2 billion, $3 billion. And what I struggled with was how could you counsel a compliance professional who would be very comfortable looking at a third-party agent, seeing the value they they uh, brought to the company in terms of whatever it may be uh, in, in the context of their payment. If it was an hourly payment, it was a, a, a com commission at 5% or less. If it was a fixed fee, that seemed reasonable. But I found no way simply that a compliance professional could look at one of these massive contracts and determine whether the price was reasonable or not. And I wonder, did you have those kinds of conversations with clients? 
Yeah, I, I think you raise a couple of interesting points. Um, and one is certainly the, the difficulty in detecting some of these schemes, and especially when you have this cartel that was entirely really outside of Petrobras coming, coming to these agreements about what the price was going to be. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a case um, where you can look at the various bids and, and say, well, why do we go with this one, which, is, which was $2 million higher than the rest? Because they were all, you know, they, they had agreed in advance. So they were, they were making, they were submitting proposals in order to avoid detection. So it would be almost impossible. You're absolutely right. Almost impossible for a compliance officer to look at this, even to take a detailed look at this and say, this is, you know, why are we paying so much for this? It, it, really, it really would, unless, unless you had a, a compliance officer that had specific experience in this exact same type of procurement at another exactly situated company, it would it would be almost impossible. Um, I, I think what we counsel clients in this area is make sure um, that you have procurement controls that can control us as best as possible, so that you're doing a um, you know a, a lowest cost, highest quality type analysis, and that there's multiple people involved in those decisions. Uh, multiple escalating levels for for higher value bids, um, and then providing you know training and certifications and everything else for your people involved in the procurement process. So at the very least, you're getting those people to certify that hey, I, you know I haven't haven't done anything wrong. I'm not aware of anything wrong. I took the training. I believe in the training. You know all of these things that that really help protect the the company, even if you ultimately can't prevent what was just a very, very hard to detect type of misconduct. One of the things I wanted to mention was all of this to say, and I, Petrobras has made this argument a number of times in different contexts is, you know, when you look at this in some ways, Petrobras comes across as a victim in, in a lot of ways in this. And I know that they've tried to make that argument, but you know, it was the individual Petrobras employees that were benefiting. It's hard to come up with a, uh, an argument for how Petrobras itself benefited from this, this scheme. Um, if you if you look at it from the shareholder side, you might say, well, they benefited by by you know these not disclosing these poor controls and basically being able to to take our money at, a, at you know at, whether it was borrowed or, or purchased a share at a higher share price. Um, but it, it really is you know unlike most other FCPA cases, it's, it's really hard to find where the benefit to Petrobras fell here. Right. Uh, in the example I gave of uh, the company I was with where feather bedding was going on, it brought up an entirely different set of uh, bribery schemes, but it touched on something you said, Mike, that I wanted to follow up on, and that is procurement and the supply chain. So in my situation, we were a direct subcontractor to Petrobras, but we were required under our contract to have other Brazilian subcontractors who had met Petrobras approved guidelines, so whether it was one or three. And we didn't necessarily connect what was going on with our payment to our subcontractors with a bribe to Petrobras. We felt comfortable that we weren't making a bribe, and none of our employees engaged in a bribe. But it turns out we were funding bribes through the subcontractors. So this case really, uh, I thought, uh, put a harsh spotlight on the procurement side and why anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance professionals needed to have visibility into their company's supply chains. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think sometimes it's overlooked. We, we talk about 
we talked about on this podcast a number of times and highlighted the, the dangers around third-party agents and that that type of um, you know engagement, those that type of contract, and how you know you'd have these these really strict due diligence procedures around that. Uh, we don't talk as much about suppliers and, and the supply chain, uh, and and part of that's for good reason. And just in general, it's it's lower risk if you're actually receiving goods. It tends to be to be lower risk. But there's certainly risk in, involved, uh, absolutely. And so, you know, building in those controls, having compliance, involvement, insight is is important for, for you know, for, for these reasons in particular that we just discussed. You know, I, I think the, the feather bedding and, and uh, the, the, the much larger uh, supply chain corruption that we saw with with this Petrobras case that we're talking about now, it's, it's um, the the risks are certainly there for abuse. And so uh, you really want to be looking to make sure you have appropriate controls to, to at least manage that risk. So let's uh, change our focus now to as, as wild as Petrobras was. This next one may be the most wild. And that's uh, Odebrecht and its little brother, Rascom. So why don't you take the lead on this one? Sure. And I think... Um, you know, we, we wrote this up for our annual alert a few years ago, and I, I'm just going to steal one sentence from, from our write-up because it really, I think, just encapsulates this perfectly. So uh, what we wrote, which is, which is true, is that Odebrecht admitted to paying approximately $788 million in bribes over the course of 15 years in 12 countries. So if there's one takeaway from this case, it's, it is just how massive and broad the corruption was. And, and that really goes to um, this, this theme that comes through as you, as you learn and read about the Odebrecht case, which is this was uh, institutional corruption on the highest level. Um, so Odebrecht was at the time, I think the largest uh, construction company in Latin America and had grown from a family business to be this massive organization in Brazil. And um, they created uh, uh, a uh, division of structured operations, I believe is what they called it. If, if, you, if you listen to the prosecutors, it was a department of bribery is, is really what it was. And this, this organization, this division within the larger, larger uh, Odebrecht family tree was um, separate. So they separated everything. It, it, they, they had separate books. They had separate computer systems. They had separate messaging apps, all of that was to protect exactly what they were doing, which was funneling money all over the world through shell companies, which were also kept separate and hidden from the rest of the organization, uh, to government officials all over the place. Now, about half of the, the money that they allegedly paid or that they admitted to paying went to Brazil and, and most of that to Petrobras. So they, they were, Odebrecht was one of those cartel companies. They were one of the companies in the cartel that that was dealing with Petrobras. But they also paid bribes all over Latin America and, and parts of Africa and, and have, have as, as sort of wide ranging as the Petrobras um, uh, case was in terms of reaching high levels of, of Brazil. Odebrecht's case was equally as, as, as far reaching in reaching the highest levels of, of other countries. In, in Peru, you had president, former president, um, in, implicated in, in Panama. I think that um, the sons of the, the president uh, there were, were uh, fugitives for a while. So 
really far ranging. Um, and then, you know, just because that the, this Department of Bribery wasn't quite enough, they also did things like old, good old fashioned money drops, cash drops, uh, right, right in the heart of, of Sao Paulo, and, and you know, dropping. Uh, they had a a, uh, a Chinese um, black market uh, money smuggler, appropriately nicknamed Dragon, who would drop suitcases full of cash at specific locations. So. Now uh, this went from from the the most sophisticated schemes you can imagine to the to the good old fashioned basics of of corruption here and and um, ultimately I believe Odebrecht paid about two point six million if I'm not mistaken the the the, the fine was higher the fine was um, four point five billion but uh, they paid two point six billion um, after making a, a presentation on their inability to pay the full amount which was accepted by the Department of Justice and. Um, uh, a judge in the Eastern District of New York. Um, and they also, this this was, you know, I think it's important to point out, this was a joint effort here. This is another big swing and, and big victory for Brazilian authorities. Uh, the Swiss were also involved. And ultimately of that amount, the U.S. only took a, a really pretty small portion. I think um, of the 2.6 billion, I think the U.S., only 93 million went to the U.S. Uh, and it was a similar breakdown, Brascam, which was a subsidiary of Odebrecht, um, who, who was was involved in, in corruption involved with with Petrobras? Um, they were ultimately they agreed to a penalty of six hundred thirty million, uh, and um, the the SEC took sixty five million, and and I think uh, the U.S. took around ninety million. So so most of the funds here went to Brazilian authorities and to, to some of the Swiss authorities as well. This was as ubiquitous a bribery scheme. That we have seen since Siemens, uh, and, and no doubt inspired by the, the Siemens model. But I'm, I've got a list of countries where Odebrecht paid bribes, and I won't go through the amounts paid or the benefits, but I just want to read the list to show you how ubiquitous this business model was for Odebrecht. In addition to Brazil, Angola, Argentina, Colombia, Dominican Republic, Ecuador, Guatemala, Mexico, Mozambique, Panama, Peru, Venezuela. And they were investigated literally anywhere Odebrecht did business, uh, including in the great state of Texas, uh, as as well they should have been. Um, the courage to take on uh, Marcelo Odebrecht and his brothers, I think, uh, in addition to what we talked about in terms of Petrobras, was really unparalleled. He literally, uh, you know, called up the president and said, come by and see me. Not, can I come see you? Uh, you know, you need to come see me. And that was the kind of power he held. And their operations were literally on a worldwide basis. And so the resources that were brought to bear to bring this down, and in addition to the original sentence of 19 years, I think I recall some 200 Odebrecht executives were criminally prosecuted in Brazil. Uh, and they were part of the Department of Structured Operations or as our Justice Department called it their Department of Bribery. Mike, um, this case, I'm glad you laid out some of the bribery schemes because they were sub, many uh, much more mundane than we saw in Petrobras. But how do you begin to think through in counseling a client uh, around uh, doing business with this company? Uh, is it that you have to start literally 
building blocks in terms of we now need to look at every contract. We need to build up to see what their overall spend is. If you are in the construction industry in the late 90s, aughts, or even in the second decade of this uh, century, uh, anywhere in the world, you you may have done business with Odebrecht. How do you help a company think through uh, an enforcement action of this magnitude? It's a good question. It's hard, you know, oftentimes we talk about these cases and we, we try to draw lessons. If you're a compliance officer at a company, what lesson do you draw? It's really hard to draw a lesson for for something like this. I mean, th- this bribery was so institutionalized that if you were a compliance officer here, I mean, it was, it was it's just, it's hard to draw a lesson from, from something this big and broad. How do you prevent something like this? So I think what, what we've had a lot coming out of this is clients who have done business with Odebrecht uh, and said, what, what do we do now? Right? Let's say we had a joint venture with them or we worked on the contract, we were subcontractors to them. What, what risk exposure do we have? Do we need to investigate every single contract that we had that they were involved in? And I think, you know, that's ultimately sort of a risk analysis that, that we've, we've advised our clients on. We have, you know, there's, there's certainly been cases, particularly where, um, you know, a number of, of Odebrecht's um, contracts were, were funded by multilateral development banks, and they ultimately uh, settled not, not too long ago with the Inter-American Development Bank related to, to this same scheme for a project that, that the Inter-American Development Bank had funded. So when we have clients who worked with Odebrecht on development bank projects, we suggested, hey, you might want to take a look because there's a chance that those development banks are going to look. Um, but it's, it's really difficult. I mean, the other part of this, it's so difficult. If you're, if you kind of go back in time before this all broke, I mean, Odebrecht was, was, was one of the most successful and prominent construction companies in the world. So there's, there's certainly no red flag to doing a joint venture with them or to, to, um, you know, being a subcontractor or being involved in a project with them, right? That this wasn't, this is not something that due diligence would necessarily help you discover. Um, and so, you know, we always we always recommend um, certifications from from joint venture partners. That's not a perfect defense, but in situations like this where it can be so difficult to to sort of identify any of this beforehand, um, that can be helpful. That's a, that's a helpful piece of paper to show a, a potential prosecutor in the future. That really also brings up an interesting point that I wanted to visit with you about uh, in terms of the fallout from this case. I, I read off that list of. Countries. I talked about the number of uh, Odebrecht employees who were criminally prosecuted. You talked about the political fallout, uh, largely in uh, Latin America and Central America and Mexico, around uh, doing business with Odebrecht. But do companies really need to start thinking about not due diligence on our third-party sales agents, but really who are we doing business with? Because if this company uh, does either have a negative reputation or we don't see the controls in place that we would typically see and the robustness around compliance, is, is, does that become a reputational risk uh, that they could get drawn into something far beyond their control, uh, nevertheless be, have their name dragged through the mud, um, which unfortunately some companies got that in the uh, – Odebrecht enforcement action. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, we, we tell clients all the time, anytime you do, you're partnering or working closely with, a, with another company, you're taking on potential risk. 
right? And especially, the, and the closer that relationship is, the, the more risk you take on. But there's different risk in a joint venture, uh, uh, you know, a, a project joint venture compared to a longer term joint venture. There's different risk in consortiums. Um, and so, absolutely. And, and, you know, all you can really do, I mean, people aren't going to stop doing business. Uh, so all you can really do as a, as a company dealing with that is try to know your partners as best as possible. Uh, try to build in controls to the, to the partnership to make sure that, you know, if you're in a JV with a, another construction company, that that joint venture has appropriate controls. Uh, and, and try as best you can to do diligence on the front end to get commitments from your joint venture, from your joint venture or, or consortium partner or whatever it may be, that they're doing things in the right way. That's, that's can kind of be, you know, the most you can do, right? Um, you know, I, you know, I, we, we had some questions. I remember sort of flipping to, to, to the other side of the world a little bit, you know, after some of the larger, um, you know, uh, settlements involving, um, you know, some of the telecommunications companies that we discussed uh, a few episodes ago. We had questions from clients who did business with those companies saying, can we still do business with them? And, you know, the answer is you can't not do business with them. Um, and just because, you know, a company has had, had an issue doesn't necessarily mean everything they touch is, is uh, tainted. Uh, but you, you try to get commitments and, and, and make sure you're, you're, you are protected as best as you can. So, Mike, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for our next episode because we've been saving the big one. Uh, we're going to do 1MDB, but this has been a great uh, episode, and the lessons that we've struggled to give our clients, I think, are are still important to, to give today. And in reviewing these, I guess the thing, two things that struck me, that one has been a theme of this podcast, which is, I forgot how insane these cases were, uh, and they still are. But number two, there really are a lot of important lessons. And the more sophisticated the bribery scheme, perhaps the bigger lesson of the work you need to do if you're on the other side of the table from one of these companies, either in in a contractual relationship in a joint venture or perhaps even negotiating or responding uh, to an RFP. So uh, lots to learn. Absolutely. Yeah, this was fun, and I'm looking forward to talking about uh, Joe Lowe and his friends uh, in the next episode.